sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Welcome to Rabbi on the Sidelines. I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman from Sinai Temple. This week, we are joined by Josh Rowich, the president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. If you have ever walked the streets of Cooperstown or into those hallowed halls, you understand that it's not just a building. It really is a true sanctuary where heroes are welcomed in and where the story of America's pastime is told every single day. Josh, it's so good to have you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my honor. Thanks for having me. So I've spoken to uh, several baseball uh, personalities over this past year that I've had this podcast of Rabbi on the Sidelines. And I always tell this story because it's important. Rabbi Solomon Schechter, the first conservative rabbi in this country, actually told his students that they cannot be a rabbi without understanding the game of baseball. Because he said that baseball is America's story. And if you're going to bring religion to America's story, then you also need to understand the American pastime. So maybe you can comment on, let's start with baseball and America. What is this connection uh, from the sport to this great nation? Oh, man. I mean, you learn so much by walking around here. And honestly, having only been on this job for for six, seven months, um, every day I pick up new information of literally how how we've been woven into the fabric of the country since mid 1800s. I mean, it's really pretty unbelievable. And I know we'll probably get into Abner Doubleday and some of those things, yeah. but you realize just the history um, and then all the way up through present day. I mean, literally we're, we're here where the, the country, we just solved our labor woes and the yes. whole country was hanging on every single piece of it to see whether spring training is going to open this week. And so it just, you really do understand how important this is to so many people in America. And I, I think the rabbi is probably right that <laughs> you do need to tell the story of America. You've got to be able to tell the story of baseball. So then let's tell a story about you first and that connecting uh, to baseball. You actually said that you got into the Hall of Fame a little different than the athletes. Um, so what was your journey to baseball and then to the Hall of Fame? Um, well, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to come here as a fan about um, 20 years ago. Always loved it. Always, I was supposed to actually be coming back this in 2022. I was supposed to be coming back uh, with my son's team because a lot of people okay. travel to Cooperstown. But yes. uh, indeed, we will be here in a different way. So my whole career has been spent in baseball. I, I started as an intern with the Dodgers when I was 18 years old and mm. got incredibly lucky to land that position and spent about 15 years there, left for two years in the middle to become a reporter uh, but then ultimately in 2011, joined the Arizona Diamondbacks for a decade as part of their leadership team. And uh, and then recently got a call from the a past president of the Hall of Fame, Jeff Eidelson, uh, another member of the tribe who said, hey, you know, I think you might be a, a perfect person for this. And somehow, some way, uh, I've found myself now living in the village of Cooperstown, two blocks from the hall. And uh, I get to come in here every single day. So you talk, spoke about being a member of the tribe. This is Rabbi on the Sidelines. We talk about faith and sports. Is there a connection between perhaps your faith and growing up within the Jewish community of Los Angeles and maybe what you have done in baseball? Has that trace gone through your journey? Yeah, there's no question over over 20, almost 28 years in baseball. There are so many times where they, they've crossed. Um, I mean, I think about honestly playing at Chatsworth. I played baseball at Chatsworth High and my coach used to have to let me out for, for Hebrew school. And like, I think about how great it was that he understood that my religion mattered to me when I was in uh, just like coming up through bar mitzvah years and, and into confirmation. And so 
even going back to that point, um, I, I think our, our, all of us have a, a level of um, connection to our ancestors that I think has very always been for me a lot of what uh, my Judaism is about is knowing going back to as many generations as we know in my family, people who who celebrated the same ways and had the same customs. Baseball is that way too. There are so many people that we talk about the Hall of Fame connecting generations. And I think that those ties are very, very common uh, when it comes to religion, when it comes to baseball. Um, and it's been that way for me. My, my, my father loved baseball growing up. My grandfather, I think about Vin Scully being the yeah. same broadcaster who my grandfather listened to, my father listened to, I listened to. And then he actually announced my son's birth on the air. Um, it just, you think about that as honestly, in a lot of ways, uh, uh, cultural experience, much like religion. Actually, on the doors of our synagogue, it says Lador Vador from generation to generation. And exactly what you said, I actually saw on your Twitter account just yesterday that you said you learn something new every day and you were in the archives. I believe yesterday you found Babe Ruth's hat. That's yeah. not a normal experience for somebody. Uh, talk about that when you see an artifact of basically somebody that we never met. But I mean, growing up, Babe Ruth is Babe Ruth. Yeah, I mean, that's actually one of the things I think baseball there's always been this kind of feeling that, that it's a sport that you can compare from generation to generation. And we have this incredible film that when you come to the hall of fame, you see it's called generations of the game. Yes. And you talk about like, I think it, it starts with, with talking about, it's crazy that you can feel this connection to someone that you never met. It, it just, it happens. And certainly we have an exhibit of that focuses on Babe Ruth. We have an exhibit that focuses on Hank Aaron. These are two icons of American history who um, Mr. Aaron, I was lucky enough to, to shake his hand one time, but I never actually got to spoke to either of these people. And yet I feel like their story is my story. Their connection to this sport is mine. And um, that is, I think, pretty unique for our sport. I can't say that every sport is like that. Uh, I can't say that others aren't, but I know that you feel it when you walk around here and certainly being down in the, in, in the collections room yesterday, um, you just you see names on the wall and they jump out at you as like, man, I can't believe that we have these artifacts from all these incredible people. Um, it's a pretty, pretty special experience. Since your time there has been a favorite artifact that you maybe found that you feel a little connection to. Oh, man, um, there's so many. It's hard to pick one. The only thing I would say that I think um, jumped out at me more recently, I grew up a huge fan of Steve Sachs. He was I'm about that age where in the 80s that. Dodgers were my team and I would sprint to first base after a walk. And it was very much, he, I just love the guy. I wore number three because he did. And I played second base and uh, I recently just stumbled upon his cleats and it was just a oh, random, wow. like, and so like to most people that won't mean anything, but that's, everybody's got their own special yeah. attachment to something. And that's certainly not the most impressive thing in here. Um, but it's for me as a, as a kid growing up, that's the idea that I could be standing in the building. And in fact, actually we're, we we're just talking to him recently because he may be coming back for our, our Hall of Fame Classic weekend that we do. Right. I just thought to myself, what in what planet do I live that <laughs> I could have grown up like emulating this guy? And now, in theory, we're both going to be hanging out in May together in Cooperstown. It's just, it's really, really cool. Well, that's how I feel like talking to you. I'm supposed <laughs> to be being a rabbi giving sermons. And I'm talking to the president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, I want to. Cooperstown represents the past, the present, and the future. So let's go back to the past first with a little video about the history of this uh, institution really being founded in 1939. So let's watch this. The name Cooperstown became synonymous with baseball immortality on June 12, 1939, when the doors to the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum officially opened for the first time. 
The Baseball Hall of Fame had been established three years earlier with the election of the first five members. And the front of the museum provided the stage for the first induction ceremony on Main Street in the quaint village. The festivities included appearances by Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, Walter Johnson, Connie Mack, and many more members of the first four induction classes. So I've been made that pilgrimage many times growing up in Syracuse. There were two pilgrimages growing up as not just in Syracuse, but as a rabbi's child. In fact, there was Jerusalem annually and there was Cooperstown annually. <laughs> uh, one of them was just a day trip. The other one was about a week. Um, but when you look at that video and you realize who's walked down those streets and then in our generation with Derek Jeter, with Mariana Rivera, with, with everybody, um, connect those dots. And uh, what do you look forward to? Obviously, it's your first year on the job. Um, what do you see towards the future in really uh, bringing the, the new Hall of Famers in? Well, I mean, what's really cool is how when, when they when they come here, we just had Tony Oliva here this past week. Um, he was, he's part of the class of 22 and he's going to he's going to be enshrined after 30 plus years of waiting. There are some people mm -hmm. who thought he should have gotten in sooner. And, and ultimately what what he did is he waited a lifetime to get here. And as he walked around. Um, he came into the plaque gallery and he's looking at Rod Carew, who's his friend. And he's looking at others that he played against who are his friend. And then he got to where his plaque was going to be. And you could just, he said, I, I can't believe that this is actually happening to me. And I think I would, I would like to think that that first class of Ruth and Johnson, et cetera, that, that they, they had that same feeling that even though at the time it wasn't known what this place would become and that it would become this hallowed ground, that that group still felt like, you know what, it's baseball immortality, not just to be have a plaque on the wall, but to be remembered, to have your artifacts looked after for eternity, to be a part of the museum where people walk around. And I mean, there's there are so many. There's another really cool artifact. I, I was just showing somebody yesterday. We have a catcher's, catcher's equipment, the very first one of the early pieces of catcher's equipment where you used to literally have to blow up through a straw. You blow up your chest protector. <laughs> yeah. It's like the people that wore these back then never could have imagined that what they were doing was going to be such a huge part of American yeah. history and that it would be preserved. And I think you, you think about Jeter, you think about the newest class. Ted Simmons also waited a long time to get here. And I think they all have that same incredible feeling when they get to walk around here that this place is unlike any other. So you're talking about waiting a long time. So what does it take to get into that Hall of Fame? It's about stats, but maybe a little later, we'll also talk about perhaps the ethical piece of walking those hallowed halls, which I have a little clip from Bob Costas uh, about what it means to be a standard bearer and not just a record breaker. So what does it take to walk those yeah. halls? Um, well, I mean, the, the interesting thing is, is we, we leave it essentially up to an electorate of baseball writers to start. And so um, obviously there are numbers, 500 home runs and 3,000 hits and 300 wins that over time have meant one thing but as the game continues to evolve and you you look at pitchers who who now probably won't win, there might not be another 300 game winner there might not be another 3000 hit guy um i think that's part of what makes this place so unique is that we ultimately leave it in the hands of this group of baseball writers who have 10 years to elect somebody and then if they don't we've got the the, the era committee process that allows you to continue to look at it and and see whether we need to whether we missed anybody and so um Yes, there is the character piece of it, and that and I'm sure you'll you'll get into. But um, I think the the best way I've always put it is that if we're going to tell people what it takes to get in here, then we could just do it ourselves. We don't need mm -hmm. to actually have an electorate, and so we leave it up to a, a group of people who have covered baseball for ten years or more, in some cases twenty, thirty, forty years, um, who are uh, by definition of being journalists, 
um, unbiased and, and looking at it from a perspective where they're not doing it because somebody's been nice to them. They're doing it because they believe that they should be enshrined as one of the, the 1% that really get their, their plaque on that wall. So take yourself into the eyes of the fan that walks into Cooperstown for the first time. It's not exactly on Main Street. It's not on Broadway, and it's not on Hollywood Boulevard. It's in Cooperstown. It's not easy to get there. Thankfully, I grew up around that area, so I'm just very fortunate when I say, have you been to Cooperstown? And most people say no. Take your um, mind into going and watching now as you're, as you're there. The child with their parent for the first time with those eyes wide open. What is it like now on the other side, watching that for the first time day in, day out? Well, first thing I have to do is correct you. We are on Main Street. We are technically Yes, yes, no, that is true. That is true. Main Street, USA. But yes, your point is well taken. Um, You know, what's interesting is my my first week here, um, I was wandering around. This is actually a great story. I was wandering through the, through the, um, on the way to the plaque gallery, there's an area where the the most recent class is, is honored. And there was a father and a son taking a picture. They, they were looking at um, Derek Jeter on the wall, the father and the son, both wearing Jeter uniforms. He's carrying his son. The kid can't be more than six months old. And he's got a, a they both have Jeter jerseys on. And I, I, I saw the, the a family member taking a picture of the two of them. And I asked the guy, uh, I later caught up with him. He actually, out, out, very small world, but he actually worked in LA media. What are the odds that this <laughs> random guy knew who I was and came over and said, are you the new president? And I said, yeah, we, Wow. So we chatted and I got his picture and I actually made it um, the photo that I used in the first letter that I put in our, our, our six time of year magazine, Memories and Dreams, because it represented everything about connecting generations. And you see this every single day. I'll walk around every day at three o'clock. I'll pop into the museum for a few minutes um, just to learn something I haven't learned before. Hmm. And every single time I see a parent and their child or a parent and uh, their like their parent a grandkid and a grandparent, it just, you, you see in, in the stories, you hear them talking about, well, when I was watching Willie Mays and they're like, yeah, but Mike Trout. And I mean, it just, it's such a cool thing to to experience. And it, it may not be on the beaten path, but that Ichiro actually often says that that's what makes this place better, that you do have to put some effort into getting yeah, here. Right. That's actually a really cool thing. And I think when people do come, it never disappoints. It always lives up to the expectations. I was also dealing with history. I was surfing through some of the induction uh, ceremonies and trying to think if I had to talk about one um, cer- one ceremony to sort of show our audience, um, which one to choose. And of course, I could have chose many, but one that really affected me was being in New York on September 11th. And so this is the uh, speech that Mike Piazza gave a couple of years ago when he was inducted and what it means to play in New York, of course, the L.A. connection, but in New York right after 9-11. So let's listen to Mike and talk about the connection between uh, modern American history and the game of baseball. Unfortunately, it wasn't always the ups and downs of baseball season we experienced. September 11, 2001 is a day that forever changed our lives. To witness the darkest evil of the human heart and witness that that as it tore many loved ones from their families will forever be burned in my soul. But from tragedy and sorrow came bravery, love, compassion, character, and eventual healing. Many of you give me praise for the two-run home run on the first game back to September, on September 21st to push us ahead of the rival Braves. But the true praise belongs to police, firefighters, first responders who knew that they were going to die but went forward anyway. 
It's really amazing. I get the chills listening to that. In fact, uh, a couple of months ago, we had Dan Schulman on the air, and he was doing Sunday night baseball, Mets, I believe, Phillies, when Osama bin Laden was caught. And he had the mm. responsibility, the obligation to tell the nation, he said, while well, in his ear was saying a play to second base, and the other ear was saying Osama bin Laden was caught, tell the nation. Wow. And here's Mike Piazza saying, God, this is just a game of baseball. I hit a two-run home run to take the Braves, you know, uh, to beat the Braves. But this is so much more. It's about the police, the firefighters, the first responders. Uh, maybe take us through what – it's just a game. But at the same time, it's so much more than the game in the history of our people. Yeah. I mean, that that that, that when you started – we started this podcast by talking about um, kind of the American history interwoven with baseball history. And certainly 9-11 does that. And you think about where we are right now in the world and, yes. and the war that's going on. And we have we have um, I can't remember the exact number, but a, a, about a, somewhere close to a third of players who are in the Hall of Fame fought in one of the wars for us. Many wow. World War Two and Korean War, et cetera. And underneath their plaque, um, you see a little medallion and you think of somebody like like um, Bob Feller, who who basically heard about Pearl Harbor and enlisted. You think about Gil Hodges, who's going in this year, who lost several years to the war, tons of it. And that, it helps you understand that those are the true heroes. They may have been incredible at what they did, throwing a baseball or hitting a baseball, but the fact that they gave up what they love to do in order to go fight for their country and that that happens every single day Mm -hmm. with people, obviously right now happening on the other side of the world. And um, we just, it's it's why we, we have such reverence here for military, for fire, for police, um, we know the sacrifice, the real sacrifices. And I've often said that, I mean, I've gotten to spend three decades in baseball. I, I get to do this for a living. This is kind of in some ways a joke when you think about what other people do, but um, those of us in baseball fully understand the sacrifices others are making so that we can work in baseball so that I get to do this every single day. And so that others can walk through these doors and have this incredible experience. At the same time, even though we say, I don't want to use the word joke, but we sort of, a game is just taken lightly. It does mean so much. When I was in New York, I was a college student at Columbia University on on September 11th and going to Yankees games towards the end of the year and adding, not just taking me out to the ball game, but God bless America, which is still continuing to be a tradition today. um, That just strikes at the heart and it strikes at the soul. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah, So... Let's look at your beginning in Cooperstown. There's a nice video of you actually walking the halls of Cooperstown. And then we'll uh, talk about what that actually means to you. Just some places in America that require only one word to conjure up a picture-perfect image. Cooperstown is one of those places. This quintessential American village has become a part of Americana itself. First as the hometown of esteemed author James Fenimore Cooper, and then as the spiritual birthplace of baseball and the physical home of the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Now it's my new home, having just moved here this summer after being named the eighth president of this revered institution. But I've also been here as a visitor several times, and there is really no place in the country like it. Taking a stroll down Main Street feels like stepping back in time as thoughts of your first baseball game come flooding back. The smell of the freshly cut green grass wafts through the air from historic Double Day Field, which just celebrated its 101st birthday. And this picturesque village of less than 2,000 people in central New York becomes the talk of the baseball world each summer as tens of thousands of fans descend upon it for the annual induction ceremony. The greatest living legends from our national pastime 
return each year to parade through our streets before taking their seat in a rocking chair overlooking Otsego Lake where they share stories well into the evening. And then, as the leaves begin to change and the snow starts to fall, Cooperstown starts to look like a postcard that you can't put down. And before you know it, spring training is upon us, and we do it all over again. Wow, memories of those snowstorms and us <laughs> listening to 570 WSYR, hoping my school is going to be called for a snow day. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's um, what I'm looking at. I see the remainder. That's what I saw you right looking now. out the window. I can only imagine what you were looking at. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Cooper and let's talk about Doubleday. Most people don't know the history of the name Cooperstown. Uh, maybe a few moments about that. And then Doubleday Field, um, just speechless when I talk sure. about Doubleday Field. So Cooper first. Yeah. So, I mean, James Fenmore Cooper, the, the famous writer, is actually his father that the town is named for, but he popularized a lot of things about this area in the Leatherstocking Tales and what he wrote. And so literally like right outside the window, there is a statue of him. I, I can see it out my window. Uh -huh. Um, and it, I mean, it, it, it gives you just a sense of kind of the history that this place goes back to. And um, it's funny, this weekend, um, I'm just getting over COVID. So I was trying to come up with things to do while I was sitting around in quarantine. And one of them, I went back and watched Last of the Mohicans, which I hadn't seen since um, since it came out in the theaters, I don't know, 30 years ago. But it's, um, you start to understand kind of the history of this area and how we got to be the way we are. And then you think about just how incredible... Um, this place has has built up over two three hundred years. I mean, it's there's there's really aren't towns like this right. uh, around America. There is such a unique place that has that's this small and this much of a village, but has that sort of history and also um, all the, the the modern amenities that it has. It's it's pretty special. So Double Day Field. Um, if you've <clears> never <throat> been there, it's just amazing. It's this little baseball field. I know each year at least there was always an exhibition. I don't know if that's still happening yeah. uh, anymore. Memorial Day weekend. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, um, Double Day Field. Tell us about that. And I'll, I'll, I would always see these little league teams come in um, day after day and basically being Hall of Famers for a day. Maybe compare that to a different film, The Field of Dreams, and what that means. Conan O'Brien, I just saw many years ago, was quoted as saying, it's a, uh, a movie that always makes men cry. Um, <laughs> so how is that Double Day, The Field of Dreams, and what does that look like? Yeah, uh, well, Double Day, I mean, unbelievable venue that's been here for uh, over 100 years, I think 102 years old this year. Uh, we do host several events there, but it's not owned by the hall. It's owned by the village. And um, cra it's crazy to think that's where my son's high school baseball games will be played. That's where the local high school team plays their games. It's oh, awesome. It kind of blows your mind. And um, there are close to 100,000 people that come in every year as part of these baseball tournaments. And they, they, they get to walk around on the same field, excuse me, where literally the, the greatest players ever, they've all pretty much, they've, they've all played there. And when you walk in, you can see the little plaque that's right there that tells you these are the the guys who have played on this field and it is, it is a who's who of baseball history. Um, there aren't very many places in America that you can walk out there and feel kind of the ghosts playing on that field. But interestingly, um, one of them is in fact, field of dreams. And we, we got the chance to, um, as I was driving cross country with my family to, to take this job, we stopped at the field of dreams oh, game. We got to be there for August 12th. And that was truly probably the best major league event I've been at in decades. It was so well done. Um, you could just feel, I mean, I got to play catch with my kids on the field and, um, you know, the, the guy who actually plays, uh, Kevin Costner's father, an actor named Dwyer Brown, he was there, got to talk to him for a little bit and just kind of, it was, as we were driving there, my son who's seen the movie and loves baseball, couldn't wait to be there. My daughter had never actually seen the movie. And mm -hmm. as I, so I was trying to explain to her why it matters. Like, why is this mat this movie part of 
kind of American culture. What? And literally, as I'm explaining the movie to her, I'm choking up in the car. I'm like, I'm not even watching the movie. I'm just choking <laughs> up, explaining it to my daughter. Um, it's just, it's such a, it, it does. Again, it comes back to connecting generations. It comes back to if you build it, they will come. And yes, and interestingly, this place is not not that different. I mean, when you think about Jane Forbes Clark, our, our chairman, um, her grandfather picked this tiny village as a place to put the Hall of Fame. And yes, it was at the time believed the Double Day started baseball here, but later disproved that, that, that it's really just a spiritual home, not the actual home of, of the start of baseball. And yet... Well, let's talk about that for a second. Talk about this. What does that mean? The difference between the spiritual home and the actual home? That's, that's, yeah, my, so, that's my business. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, if you think about um, basically a, a commission back in the early 1900s wanted to figure out how baseball got started. Um, they put out feelers and a, a, a miner out of Colorado uh, named Abner Graves sent a, lo- a letter that said, I was with, I was in Cooperstown, New York, when Abner Doubleday started baseball. Um, it kind of sound believable. Here's the Civil War hero, um, and it turned out that as research came along, Abner Doubleday wasn't even actually in Cooperstown in 1839. Well, you're it destroying our dreams been. here. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and we had this this Doubleday baseball that was one of our very first artifacts that allowed us to start this museum. And so ultimately, what it turned out as this, this Civil War hero actually fired the first shots at, at Fort Sumter. Um, we, we often say he didn't start baseball, but he did start the Civil War. Um, but so ultimately, because we knew that this wasn't really where baseball started, it's still over the last 80 plus years that the Hall of Fame has been here. It has become the spiritual home. People mm-hmm. come here and they still feel it. And Doubleday Field still opened up in, in um, 1921 and is 100 years later been home to all these people. So I think you still feel the spirits of baseball's beginnings as you walk around here. Um, that's not to say baseball wasn't played here in the very, very earliest days. It just wasn't founded here. Um, and just to quickly finish the thought on, on Stephen Clark, I mean, he started a museum here uh, thinking that this might be a way to grow tourism in this tiny little area. Yes. And it was. I mean, you think about now the hundreds of thousands of people that come here. That's the ultimate. If you build it, will they come? Yes. They built it. And people come here in mass to check mm-hmm. out this place, um, something that he thought of 80, 85 years ago interesting that you say the spiritual home i didn't really begin there i'm reminded of uh my teacher of blessed memory rabbi neil gilman who talks about living in the myth that even though a myth might not necessarily be reality when you live within it it actually becomes a reality and a beautiful reality because it it, it builds upon as you say those generations um no question. there's a little exhibit that most people don't really focus on about the colorado silver bullets and baseball is not just about men playing with the hardball, but actually it's also about the role of women in the game. I know it's obviously brought to Field of Dreams as well, but who were the Colorado Silver Bullets and why were they important in the history of baseball? Well, what's interesting is um, I actually remember when they started playing, it was, it was a women's professional baseball league that played in the mid-90s. Um, and my, I remember my dad got me a set of their baseball cards. I was probably 14, 15, 16, 17, somewhere in there. Um, and I remember that there was a Hall of Famer, Phil Necro, who was yeah. their manager. And like, what are the odds that years and years later I would wind up uh, in this sort of role as I'm looking at someone like Phil Necro? But um, ultimately, that exhibit, what's really cool about the exhibit that focuses really on, on, on all, it's called Diamond Dreams, and it focuses on all women in baseball. It's The Silver Bullets are a piece of it, but it focuses on the All-American Girls Baseball League that that League of Their Own was 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 written about, um, that played baseball while the men went off to war in, in World War II. It focuses on people like Kim Ang, a really close friend of mine who's now the first female general manager, 
or oh, Rachel nice. Balkovich, who's now the first on-field manager in the minor leagues. I mean, really, wow. when you when you think about the impact that women have had on baseball, going back, Effa Manley is the only female who's enshrined with a plaque, a former Negro Leagues owner. Wow. All the way, all the way back to the earliest days, an owner um, of the St. Louis team that uh, was a female who, who inherited the team from her husband but then ran it. The women's history in baseball goes back many, many, many years. And what's pretty neat, I don't think most people realize this, people come here, they see the the exhibit, and I think they often think, oh, that's cool. Like League of Their Own must have sparked this because there's so much of the All-American Girls Professional League here, including uniforms from the league, et cetera. It was actually the other way around that Penny Marshall was here visiting the Hall of Fame. She saw the pre precursor to this exhibit that was mm -hmm. um, a, a smaller exhibit on women in baseball. And that's what kind of led her to make the movie. And the, the movie portions of that movie, League of Their Own, were actually filmed here in Cooperstown. So, um, again, history intertwined going back. And right. I wish I could find those cards. I, I, I have them somewhere in my collection, but pretty neat that the silver bullets, I had a pack of them and uh, I remember them well. So, I want to talk about. The piece, obviously, the piece of woman within baseball history, a very important piece. I want to also talk about race. Um, Hank Aaron, Jackie Robinson, what that means back then, but also um, over these past years in terms of a racial tension still within this country, uh, what that means both on the field and how players on the field can um, make a difference off the field as well. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was just talking on Friday with uh, the, the head of the Players Alliance, which is a essentially a group, a nonprofit organization that is all of the current, basically all of the current black baseball players trying to find a way to make a difference for the game that mm -hmm. they love. And um, we do have an incredible exhibit here called ideals and injustices. Um, it recently actually changed. We changed the name of it last year, as well as a number of labels within it. Um, because as what, what we've seen in the world, certainly over the last few years, as, as racial discussions continue to grow and people's understanding of racism and how, how they've impacted our society and our game, um, a lot of what we're currently talking about is how we can continue to tell that story in a meaningful way. The exhibit that we currently have um, actually opened in 1997 when Jackie Robinson was celebrating the, the 50th anniversary of breaking the color barrier and his number 42 was was retired all across baseball. And all many of us in baseball refer to that as really kind of the seminal moment of baseball history. Absolutely. If you think about well before civil rights were going on and um, I was very fortunate if any of your, any of your congregants there are, are Dodger fans. They'll know the name Don Many. Newcomb, no doubt. Um, they'll know <laughs> the name Don Newcomb, who became a very good friend of mine at the Dodgers when I worked there. And he used to tell me about going with him and Jackie and Roy Campanella going to, to dinner at, at Dr. King's house and talking about how they could help change America. And Dr. King would say, well, you don't realize how much you guys have already done to help me by yeah. what you've done these last 15 years. And so you think about just the impact that baseball and the integration of baseball has had. Um, and now we're coming up on April 15th, the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier. We're 25 uh -huh. years since this exhibit um, went in. We're certainly due to, to get a new one in there that helps tell the story of what's gone on in the last 25 years with race in America. And we're committed to making sure that that story lives on through our online education programs and everything else that we do. Um, you, you can't tell the story of baseball without the, the black baseball experience. So maybe share a little more about the online education uh, experience, what that is. And uh, I haven't heard about that and what it means if you can't get to Cooperstown, how you can bring it to us. Yeah. So actually, if you, it, our, our education department is this incredible piece of what we do that, again, I think most people tend to think we're, we're an MLB entity that Major League Baseball somehow pays for this. But we're, we are an independent nonprofit that survives on donations and, and on 
Um, actually, we have an incredible program with Morgan Stanley that's actually helping take education into underserved communities. Oh, and wow, one of the programs that we have focuses on the history of black baseball. So, I mean, wow. it's if you check out baseballhall.org slash education, you'll get you'll you'll get an understanding of just what the program does. But um, we have an entire department of of teachers, of educators, of people whose whose job it is is to help teach baseball. Um, help teach young people through baseball. So interestingly, actually, during the pandemic, um, before I was working here, well, everybody's kids are at home and we're trying to figure out what are we going to do. And I actually used some of their curriculum to teach my son baseball. Oh. We were learning about labor unions and it's it's all online at, at baseballhall.org. You can see what we do. It's just, um, it's an incredible piece of what we do that doesn't often get enough attention. And um, yeah, I would highly recommend people hopping on the website and checking it out. It's It's hard to sum up it's it's a huge huge piece of what we do so how do you decide what exhibit is next you talked about um you know race and you say you know what we have to do an exhibit like this um is it sort when you talk about the color or silver bullets you know that informed the movie not the other way around how do you decide you know what's going to be obviously the present but what does the baseball hall of fame look like in 10 years when i bring my children yeah i mean that's a huge part of what we try to um, figure out on a daily basis. Certainly part of my um, interview process for this job was talking about how do we stay relevant for the next generation of fans that are going to come. And so that's everything from the technology within exhibits, but also just the the way in which the next generation of kids is, is intaking information is different than the way we do. So um, we have pretty good, uh, I don't want to say debates, but vigorous conversations where we, we talk about, okay, what should be next? What's what what there's probably on a list of I don't know, 15 to 20 exhibits that we would love to undertake, but you can't do them all at once. We have obviously limited resources, limited people um, to be able to do it. If we have anybody that wants to write a seven figure check and help us move a little faster, we're always willing. But um, in the meantime, we try to prioritize it. And so we look at everything from um, what are the artifacts that we have on hand? What are some of the things that the stories that aren't told? What are some of the stories that maybe we've told, but need to be updated? I mean, when you cut, you'll, you'll, you'll notice when you come to the hall of fame, you see, um, a timeline that takes you basically from the beginning of baseball all the way through modern times. Um, that hasn't been updated in many years. So we've talked about how do we update that so that it, it, again, maybe some of the things that we talked about from the 1910s or 1920s don't make it in there because as time grows, you can't put everything that's happened in there. You have to, we have a limited amount of space. So it's, um, I can't tell you exactly what it's going to look like when you come 10 years from now, but I can tell you um, it will continue to inspire the way it has for me when I came 20 years ago. And mm -hmm. when people are showing up here right now, that's honestly, that's my job. That's our job as a group to keep trying to figure out kind of what's next. What are we going to get people excited about for the next iteration of the hall? I love that you're holding a baseball in your hand. Is there any significance to that ball? No. Well, actually there is in a weird way. Um, it, I've always, my whole career, I've had a baseball. I don't know why, just I'm always rubbing it up or whatever. This one happens to be, um, when I was with the Diamondbacks, we um, we happened to play at Wrigley when they had the 100-year anniversary, 1914 to 2014. So this has a Wrigley um, insignia oh, wow. on it. And I just, it's always just been, it just sits by my desk. I don't, I, I'm always flipping ball. I didn't even realize I was doing it. So you just. I have it. a grogger, so I don't know. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I won't say uh, Heyman. Yeah. <laughs> How do you decide then what artifact though, right? When you say, oh my gosh, this guy just hit a 300 home run. We have to grab that. How does that process work? Uh, finding the fan in the stands that wants to keep it. Um, what does that look like? So when I walk in the hall, I see these guys cleats or uh, this person's jersey. 
Yeah, it's a really cool part of what we do here. And so there's two day, two different ways it happens. One, if you know something's coming, you can prepare for it, right. a milestone event. And so you'll you'll we'll get in touch with the team in advance. I'll take Max Scherzer last year in advance of getting his three thousand strikeout. We were in touch with the team and we said, hey, could you can you check with Max and see whether he'd be willing to give us his cleats or a spike or a ball or one one of these things that um, if you know it's coming, you can prepare for it. And so sometimes, really, what we try to do is tell the story. Obviously, if a if a guy has um, uh, let, let's say if a, if a guy hits his 500th home run, we're not going to ask for his glove. I mean, we want to be able to tell the story of the actual event. Um, but then there's also plenty of things that happen where you don't know, and no hitter is going to ha- you you don't know right. on a given night that someone's going to hit four home runs. And so as soon as that happens, we have a follow up conversation with um, the team, usually the team PR rep. We reach out to them. We ask them, hey, will you check in with the player and see if they'd be willing to donate? And then there's interesting things like the World Series. Part of my job, actually, this is another great L.A. and Jewish L.A. story. Um, uh, Max Freed, interestingly enough, his his high school baseball coach was my teammate in high school. He went to Harvard-Westlake, um, and he he his teammate or his, his coach was my great teammate. Great baseball now. program there, of course. Exactly, yeah. And uh, his coach was Matt LaCour, who was a teammate of mine in high school. And so as soon as the World Series ended, I'm down on the field and a, a mutual friend of mine and Max Fried sees me and introduces me to Max Fried and said, hey, this guy's Jewish, too. He's the president of the Hall of Fame and he <laughs> needs something of yours. And so we kind of joke. We chatted. This is literally like 10 minutes after the last out of the World Series. And I said to Max, hey, would you be willing to give us perhaps your cleats from tonight's game? Oh, wow. It was the one that he got stepped on. And um, interestingly, it was a different pair of cleats than the one that he wore early in the series. Um, when he was, they believed it to be the first uh, uh, battling of Jews in the World Series when he faced yes. Alex Bregman. But so it's different paracletes. But w- what we do is we ask in that moment. And so Jock Peterson walked by us in the mm-hmm. clubhouse afterward. And I jokingly said, hey, Jock, we, we wouldn't ask you for those pearls because we know they're real. But ha ha ha. And he goes, hey, are you serious? I'm like, well, I'm serious if you're serious. Next wow. thing you know, he's donating the pearls to us. So oh, that's amazing. Um, and then there's the last piece is actually we get offers of donations all the time from people who find incredible stuff in storage or that's willed down from their family before them. And so every two weeks we have an accessions committee that hops on oh, wow. and we go through and we say, OK, well, here's this incredible here's a cup from the first night game in Wrigley Field history that a fan wants to give us. Would we do we want to preserve this? And when we're agreeing to preserve something, we're preserving it forever. I mean, that's that's a long time. So we can't just take absolutely everything that's offered. We have to look into Okay, what is how authentic is it? Do we know? Yeah, how do you do that? How's the authenticity process work? It's pretty incredible. I mean, you you can find out a lot by talking to the potential donor. They'll tell you how they got it and you start to understand it. But we have several people on our staff, one in particular who's this incredible super sleuth who can literally he'll go through old photos and he'll be able to tell, okay, well, this this pinstripe on a Yankee uniform was actually right here. And in the photo, it's actually it connects to here. And I don't think this is actually the thing that we think it is. It's unbelievable the work that goes into um, trying to determine the authenticity. Nowadays, you have um, you have the, the authentication program where there's a little hologram on each thing that, that comes to us. Um, but back in the day, we really have to trust, is this story believable? Is this person really who they say they are? And do they really get it from the person they say they are? And then we try to do a lot of independent research to verify it. It's like the archaeological digs in uh, Israel when, is this shard really? Is Or is this a kid's uh, picture that he just uh, threw uh, in the ground? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's shift to Israel for just a moment, because I think a historic moment happened uh, this past year when Israel made the Olympics first time of baseball in the Olympics. And then it's interesting because a lot of those guys actually made Aliyah, but they're from L.A. We had the ability to host some of them uh, 
Zach Penn praise. I actually had Ty Kelly on the show a couple of months ago awesome. and telling their story was just amazing. Um, what does that mean? Both actually in the Israel diaspora world, most people don't even know about Israel. And all of a sudden there's six teams playing in baseball and they're one of them. And then also so for some of these Jewish players, I'm not sure if you know the story of Peter Kurtz when he was basically talking to people like you saying like, hey, Josh, do you know any Jewish players? If they have any Jewish interests, throw them on the team. Um, tell us if you followed that story, what that meant to baseball and to Israel and to the Jewish community. Yeah, actually, I've been following it very closely for many years because interestingly, in, um, in 2017, um, I've always been a big, huge fan of the World Baseball Classic. And I, um, I've always worked each, I've worked them for the league. So in 2017, oh, nice. MLB asked if I would be willing to run the venue in Korea. And so oh. I went out there as the as the kind of head of media relations for the venue in Korea. And as it turned out, Team Israel had mm -hmm. their incredible run there. And I had a front row seat when they, I was down on the field when they all took off their hats for the anthem and put on kipot. And I just, wow. man, wow. it was, it was. Wow. I'm getting chills just talking about it. It was so cool. And I got to know Peter and all the guys that were on that team. And I actually have a throwaway line in uh, in Heading Home, the movie. Um, oh, one nice. of my one of my good friends helped make that movie. And so um, that's that story has meant a lot to me for quite some time. I, what what the WBC originally and then later the Olympics, I think, does is it just it really puts Israel on the map for baseball fans. Mm -hmm. it, it These little kids who are um, going to play on baseball fields, there aren't very many of them in Israel, but there's no reason why um, years from now you can't have a lot more guys like Shlomo Lippitz, who actually grew up in Israel and actually played for that team in the WBC and I think was a coach in the Olympic team. There's no reason why we can't have – Little leagues thriving throughout Israel and ultimately continue to expand the game internationally and globally. And um, the more Jewish players who who talk about their heritage, it creates more role models for them um, back in back in Israel. And um, I know several guys who who made Aliyah as part of that process, mm -hmm. either the movie or as part of the kind of connecting with their heritage. And every single one of them, whether they went there or not, thinking that they were going to become um, overwhelmed with emotion, every one of them, it just hit them in unbelievable ways to realize even if they, maybe they grew up with one Jewish parent or maybe they had a grandparent who was in the Holocaust and didn't really know much about it. Every one of them walked away with an unbelievable experience in Israel and at the WBC took it to the next level and then Olympics on a whole nother level. It was pretty cool to watch. Unfortunately, they didn't medal, but just getting there is unreal. It was amazing because when those players came here, they came on a Shabbat morning. It was interesting. They had already made Aliyah, and a lot of these American players were the first time that they walked into a synagogue was here at our synagogue. Wow. And then we had a lot of our kids who play Little League, and the message that they gave them, um, and it was, uh, let's see, it was Ty Kelly, Blake, uh, I forgot Blake's last name. Blake Galen, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Zach Pemprey, and they said, like, guys, like, you can be Olympians, but not only Olympians, Jewish Olympians representing the state of Israel. And I saw these kids with these wide eyes um, saying, like, we, we can we can do this too and we talk we've been talking about this hour you know it's much more than a game in those moments it's a uh, much more than a game as well no um, some of those jews in baseball of course hank greenberg sandy koufax a couple of months ago i also had dr jeff gurak who's a professor of american jewish history who wrote the book uh, american or uh, america's encounter or Ju sports's encounter with american judaism and he specifically mentions hank greenberg sandy koufax the yom kippur jews right but in 86, when the Mets meet the World Series, the Jewish community actually demands that they change their timing of the game because it's Kol mm -hmm. Nidre. Um, how do you see the Jewish community through baseball, the support of it right now? Um, and, you know, Dodger Day, you have Jeff Gourmet kosher sausages, you have Jewish Heritage Day. Why do teams do that? What does it mean to them? And what does it mean to those communities? 
Well, I think it's, it really honestly is all about inclusivity and trying to give people a reason to connect with the game. And so obviously they don't just have Jewish heritage games. They'll do Hispanic heritage day and African-American heritage, all the, all the different um, types of quote unquote group sales that teams do. Um, But I think when you're, when you're a, a, Again, if your synagogue sends out an email that says, hey, we're going to the Dodger game and, and come join us, be a part of that, it's all part of community. I mean, you get a right. chance to go sit and be a part of a something bigger than yourself. And that could be the group that's going. You, I mean, I remember going to plenty of games as a kid um, where I went with either my, my summer camp or my synagogue or whatever. And you just – I think it, it – um, <clears throat> Teams do it because it works, because I think what teams are trying to do is create a sense of community. And, and in a world where there's so much fear of what's different and so much just the, the challenge that we go through, when people are all sitting in a ballpark, usually they're rooting for the same yeah. the same side. I mean, nobody nobody looks at Alex Bregman and roots against him because he's Jewish. They, they, they want to see him win. And nobody roots against a, a Hispanic player or a black player that's on their team. They want to see them win. And I think that um, the the more you can get people to have something in common, and in this case, sports and baseball is that thing, the more we can begin to understand each other and be less mm-hmm. fearful of things that aren't like us. And, um, you know, it, that's probably – I'd love to think that teams are doing it for those altruistic reasons. They're doing it because it, that's what you, you – you build community, and that's how you build fan bases. And, and hopefully in the long run, that helps us all work together a little better. So let's just talk about the ethics of baseball, what's happening now. I know it's a sensitive topic. Um, this is a little, uh, and, and I, I know, I mean, you had the honor as you went into this job of, in fact, announcing the inductees of the Hall of Fame to see that That's was crazy. was pretty pretty neat and probably a, a dream come true. Um, but no you, when you said those names, it obviously led to lots of commentary as well. This is Bob Costas speaking about record holding versus standard bearing. With the fact that tomorrow, January 22nd, marks the first anniversary of the death of Henry Aaron, the man whose all-time home run record was surpassed, numerically, by Bonds. Make no mistake, as we've often said, on his natural merits, Barry Bonds was an authentically great player. If broadcasters had a vote, which they don't, it's only the writers who do, I would have voted for Bonds for the Hall of Fame. By any reasonable measure, he was one of the best all-round players of any era. But for obvious reasons, his video game late career numbers are inauthentic. Bonds, then, is the statistical home run leader. It's right there in the record book. But for many, Henry Aaron is the authentic and enduring home run king. Or as sociologist Dr. Harry Edwards once put it, Bonds is the record holder. Aaron is the standard bearer. It had to be an intense moment as, you know, the, I don't want to say the country's divided, but perhaps the sports world's divided. I mean, I grew up watching Barry Bonds, Bobby Bonilla, Roger Clemens, et cetera. Great, great players, but obviously uh, record-breaking versus standard-bearing. Um, how does that come into play when we're talking about the Hall of Fame? Yeah, I mean, it. I obviously grew up watching that same era of players, and so it is in, in some ways I think some people can look at it and say, man, there's a whole generation of players that aren't in the Hall of Fame um, who were the best of their of their period. The way we really see it is ultimately we we, we know that the character clause exists. We know that in, in this instance, um, Bonds, Clemens, two of the examples you used, got somewhere close to two-thirds of the electorate voting for them, but we've always had a three-quarter going back to the earliest days of, of the Hall of Fame, 1940s, the that the so-called character clause has been in place. And we've, we've always felt like, um, you know, baseball is held to a higher standard than other sports. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just 
reality, whether it comes to steroids, whether it comes to um, I mean, any, any number of issues we've had over the years. Um, you see them in other sports and they kind of come and go. And in baseball, they're held to a different a higher standard. And we actually think that's a good thing. I think in a lot of ways that's benefited baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, we do think character matters. And in this instance, um, 75% of the writers didn't believe that um, based more than likely on that. And they're probably not saying that the stats aren't there. They're probably saying that they felt like they weren't compiled the right way. And so again, that's now we, what we do have is another process where frankly um, in the not too distant future, there's going to be another committee of 16 people that will sit down and 75%, 12 of them may decide, you know what? We think that this group of players who hasn't gotten enshrined belongs in there. They also may not. And I think the biggest thing that people sometimes miss in this debate is that we're not keeping them out of this building. Um, first of all, we're not making any of these decisions. We're leaving it up to an electorate to make that decision. Because like I said before, if we're going to tell them what character should mean, we might as well just decide on our own who goes in there. I mean, it's really up to multiple electorates. But you walk around the museum and players, you name it, Shoeless Joe, Pete Rose, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, mm-hmm. you name they're everywhere in the museum. When you talk about preserving history, mm-hmm. that's what we do. We're not changing history it's different in the plaque gallery. There's no question. That's where I think some people at a distance think the Hall of Fame is just this one hallway. Right, and it's right, not. Right. It's a three-story museum with an incredible detailed history that uh, we try to share. And um, my guess is there won't be a day in my lifetime where all of those names aren't represented throughout the hallways. You can't tell the history of baseball without talking about those people. We don't try to, and we don't think we should. Um, it's really up to others whether they get a plaque in the plaque gallery. So two last questions. The first is, and we connected actually through the article in the JTA that said Josh Rawich, national president of the, or president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame, Jewish, and told your Jewish story. What does it mean for you to represent Judaism, the our our, our faith, as the president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, I mean, my my faith has always been really important to me. Certainly, from a um, heritage standpoint, from a cultural standpoint. Um, I, I, I'm surprised in some ways that that uh, after that J, that story ran in JTA, it wound up in the Jerusalem Post, and it's led to, I don't even know, 20, 30 other interviews like this that kind of just blow my mind that people care that much. Um, but I think it, 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 to me, in a lot of ways, represents just the pride that people have in being Jewish, the, the pride that people take in um, seeing somebody else, quote unquote, like them, end up in a mm-hmm. position like this. And I think that that's 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 meant a ton to me. And, and certainly in my house, I have, um, I have a, a photos of, of family going back three and four generations as far back as we have it. And honestly, every time I walk by it, I think to myself like, God, I can't imagine what my immigrant great grandparents who came wow. here with nothing would have thought that their great grandkid could end up in a job like this, doing what he loves and representing the family in that way. So um, certainly all of them probably more orth. I, I came from Orthodox Jews multiple generations back. Um, mm-hmm. I think that they would get a huge kick out of it. I take great pride in representing our faith and, um, it's not something I take lightly. I think it's pretty cool. So last, I'm a little league parent. Many people watching this are little league parents. Mm-hmm. I was just on the field yesterday watching my kids swing, you know, a bat for the, basically the first time understanding what it means to throw a kid out and everything like that. Um, uh, what's your message to young families, young parents, um, about what baseball can teach our children. And also, as you said, not to take it so seriously, but also to take it seriously that this game can teach us a lot in terms of our life lessons. Yeah. I mean, it happens every single day on the field. Um, I also, my son is 11 and, and still playing. And 
Um, I mean, the, the opportunity to learn how to be a teammate, how to um, give back, how to play the right way, how to fail and then succeed. I mean, all of these things that, I mean, baseball, everybody talks about, you get a hit three times out of 10 and you're going to the hall of fame. I mean, that's seven times out of 10, you're going to fail. And and I was the, I would go back to the dugout and cry after all my strikeouts. And finally my mom is like, enough. If you cry again, we are not putting you back out there. And you learn how to control your emotions. You learn how to, how to, how to do things the right way on, on the baseball diamond. And I, I'm actually really excited. My new job here um, frees up a little bit of my evenings where I don't have 81 home games anymore and all the, the, the road games I used to go to. I'm going to hopefully start to, to coach out here again, oh, which wow. I, I didn't get a chance to do in Arizona or L.A. And I'm just I'm, I'm so excited for what you can teach a kid through sports and specifically through baseball, because it is um, it's this unbelievable pastime. You, you, you can it's every single day. So you're, you're constantly you can come into practice on any day and say, Hey, did you see the game yesterday? It's on, this isn't football where there's only a game on Sundays, like every single day you can go and say, Hey, did you see what happened last night on this play? And maybe it's a lesson that can be learned as as a kid. And I know it worked for me. Um, I think about the rules my high school coach had that I still to this day live by, be on time, do things right. I mean, there is so much this game teaches us. Um, I just feel incredibly lucky to be coming into a place every day where we preserve that history and we honor the excellence of, of those who've come before us. And then, and then we connect generations. And as a coach, I'm sure you see that every day you're Mm -hmm. connecting with your kids in ways that um, you just, you you don't find ways to do that when you're just sitting around the house. So you get out, you get on a baseball diamond and you go do it. And I hope every kid will continue to play hard, um, give it what they have. And this game will give you way more in return. In our last moment, baseball is back. I have you on the air when the week that baseball is back. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to us? Baseball's uh, back. It, this is this is awesome. I mean, we really uh, we need this as a society. We need this as a fan base. Um, all the great changes that are going to be a part of this new collective bargaining agreement, um, both on the field and off. Certainly, players deserve to be compensated well for what they do. But all these cool changes that are coming on the field that I think will make the game more relevant for your kid, for my kids. Um, I think it's 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 the best possible thing. And right now, balls are being thrown in spring training, and uh, we're less than a month out from opening day. We're going to get a full 162 games in. Going to have an all-star game in L.A., which I'll be out there for. We're going to have a World it, Series. Um, all these amazing things. Um, the country needs it, and our fan base needs it, and I'm really, really excited that it's back. We are so thrilled to have Josh Rawitz, president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame from Cooperstown. We are excited that baseball's back. Josh, it's a pleasure to have you on Rabbi on the Sidelines. We look forward to uh, welcoming you here to Los Sinai Temple, back home when you're home uh, during the season. And uh, thank you. And as I like to say, play ball. Well, pleasure's all mine. Thanks so much. And uh, appreciate you having me. Thank you.